Namaste and welcome to another edition of the Bharat Vartha Weekly. I'm Roshan Karyapa. I have with me Nirav Kanodra and Abhishek Paul to run you through the news and events of the week that was. It's been a rather eventful week. We had elections in Meghalaya, Nagaland and Tripura and we had uh, fabulous results for the BJP. There were some interesting remarks by Rahul Gandhi at uh, Cambridge University. Then the Supreme Court called for a committee to appoint election commissioners. Foxconn declared plans for a $700 million plant in India. And we have a few highlights from the ongoing Rezina dialogues happening in Delhi. All of this and more on this weekly. If you're a first-time visitor to the podcast, we publish episodes on politics, policy and culture. We do two or more episodes every week. Follow, subscribe to us for more such content. And if you are a returning visitor, do consider rating and reviewing us on your favorite platform so more people can discover us. Hey Abhishek, hey Nirav, how's it going? Seems like uh, the Mumbai and Bangalore weather is kind of matching at this point of time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so there is like a little bit smoggy in Mumbai. But yeah, uh, always good to be back in India. Awesome. So hopefully Nirav and I, I get to meet each other after you know years of doing this for the first time, right? So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, well, let's move on to the first piece of news. It's three out of three for BJP in the northeastern states. On March 2nd, the election results in the northeastern states of Meghalaya, Nagaland and Tripura were announced. The BJP and its allies have won in all three states, wiping out Congress and its allies. BJP leaders said that the states have chosen development and reiterated their vision to improve infrastructure and empower the people of these states. Opposition leader Malikarjan Karge brushed off BJP's victory and said that these were to quote smaller states and that they won't have an impact at the national level. Abhishek, uh, it seems like BJP is further consolidating its position in the Northeast and it's remarkable because the story was completely different 8 or 10 years back, right? Yeah, quite an impressive performance by BJP and its allies in these three elections. So, uh, if we start with uh, Tripura, I mean, BJP was the incumbent, right, with Manik Saha as the chief minister. Uh, he had be he had become the CM middle of that uh, last term, right, where earlier it was uh, Biplab Deb who had won the elections in 2018. So this time there was a bit of a reshuffle in the opposition. There was this new party called TMP, which is uh, called basically the Tipra Motha party, uh, led by uh, Pradyot Dev Burma, who is basically the head of the Tripuri royal family. So they were a new sort of challenger in the space and they did all right. They got about 13 seats and a 20% sort of vote share. Uh, but most of their votes actually came out of the CPM's vote share, right? BJP uh, lost about 4.5% vote share and uh, four seats, but, you know, still managed to sort of comfortably emerge as the victor here. So pretty solid performance, I would say, by the uh, BJP in Tripura. Coming to Nagaland, right? Uh, so Nagaland is where again uh, BJP governs uh, as part of the alliance, right, called the NEDA, right. Uh, and so again, they were sort of reasonably comfortable in winning the state. And finally, in Mekhale, it's still a little bit sort of contentious. The incumbent CM Conrad Sangma initially submitted about 32 out of uh, 60 seats as his support, 
but later it seems one of the smaller parties has withdrawn so right now it's like a very close thing with 30 versus 29 uh, on both sides uh, of the alliances and yeah i think that will probably be uh, a little bit of an interesting follow-up in terms of who is able to sort of prove their majority in the state but overall even the national media is sort of acknowledging the fact that bjp and the nda has done tremendous amount of development work trying to integrate the northeast with the mainstream very good sort of delivery of common goods welfare and so even though it does not fit the common narrative of the bjp as a hindu hindi speaking party right it is i mean the fact that it is part of the governing alliances in state like nagaland which is a christian majority state right the places with very high sort of tribal populations really makes it quite impressive and i would say that the work of leaders like uh, himanta biswa sarma over the years has definitely uh, sort of paid dividends for the bjp yeah uh, i think he's been the architect of uh, you know bjp's uh, electioneering in the northeast right i mean especially in nagaland and tripura i think he's done a lot of work there uh, and what a loss for the congress right i mean losing such a capable uh, guy really in some optimistic news uh, in a shift away from china apple's biggest manufacturer foxconn has planned to invest a whopping 700 million dollars in india the company is said to have allotted a 300-acre piece of land near Bengaluru. Karnataka Chief Minister Mr. Vaswaraj Bhumai said the new plant will make iPhones and will create 1 lakh jobs. Nirav, this is an amazing development, right? I mean, you know, we talk about India lagging behind on the manufacturing front. Uh, this is a very interesting start. Yeah, absolutely. As in, I think compared to the amount of what is the investment in there, right? It is the 1 lakh jobs. I think that is what I'm looking at. Think about the multiplier effect that, uh, so one is, there are critics and they are saying that this is screwdriver technology, but what it does is it creates one basic capable set of workforce. And now this workforce, once it gets up, gets skilled, maybe we can do more advanced assembly as well, right? That is one thing. Second, each person who comes in, gets employed, has like an income which spent, and they spend this money within the domestic economy and there's a multiplier effect. Thirdly. Uh, this kind of is getting, India has a structural trade deficit. So we import more goods than we export. We export a lot more services and the net balance is still in deficit is we have a lot of remittances from uh, citizens living overseas and we are foreigners buying our equities and debt, right? We are uh, buying our, using their capital. So now this is not sustainable to be fair. So this is one other good way that uh, we kind of use our excess uh, labor, make productive things, which allows us to import things that we don't have. For example, we don't have oil. So we have to import oil. This allows us to import things which we don't have by producing things which other people want. And this is like a really big positive. And see, from perspective of Apple and Foxconn, Apple is an American company. Foxconn is a Taiwanese company. Between US and China, Taiwan and China, there are tensions. And for various reasons, it, they did put all their eggs in one basket. They are diversifying away. There are some other investment news about investing in Vietnam as well, right? So I think iPhones will be majorly made in India, whereas AirPods and laptops, so MacBooks, etc., will be made in Vietnam. This is kind of Foxconn strategy, and they do want more redundancy. So this is per, this is a really nice thing. 
we get into assembly of electronics and even in southeast asia like malaysia singapore or even taiwan earlier they started off with assembly then they started off going to do some manufacturing of like the components then finally they went to design india is the other way around usually we get to the design part first right we have a lot of design and research going on in india for texas instruments and the likes right and we don't have the assembly when whereas you have a very large population a lot of disguised unemployment a lot of unemployment so i think 700 million dollars yes uh, that's a great thing but we see that much inflows outflows of a few billion dollars in the stock markets anyways i think more important is 100000 people being employed and like the multiplier effects of that i think that's that's a very very big positive even it kind of diversifies while bangalore has a lot of manufacturing but like bangalore what comes first to mind is the software part right and now we are getting into the hardware part as well and slowly and steadily if we, we see more such clusters come up and uh, second thing is uh, foxconn is also getting into evs or ev components and that's they think it's a very it's a related thing from having like lithium battery phones right and like lithium battery in your laptops so from electronics they're moving to electric vehicles as well and they will be spending some money there as well so this is like a, all in all a very positive news and earlier modi himself mentioned that like people are calling india anti fragile but this is the case that when there is a little bit of chaos in the world there are shocks in the world india has been an alternative where india has tried to make use of this opportunity and uh, hopefully once we have apple we have samsung having a facility near noida we have uh, foxconn near uh, bengaluru and uh, something near hosur as well so we see more and more such investments come up i would be happy if we see each state trying to win in uh, fdi like this and a healthy competition right and different sectors we see many more manufacturing companies set up operations in india so that will be great as in it's the most positive news that i have heard this week yeah i think the other thing also is the fact that this will standardize our process and everything right because people often talk about hey you know you can't manufacture a certain thing because we don't have the capabilities of you know i've heard people say we're not productive enough and so on and so forth right but what i think people tend to ignore is the three or four decade lead that uh, china has had uh, right in being able to make this uh, shift right starting from the 90s so i think this is a very very interesting development i completely agree with you nirav Well, so uh, I'll in... just add a few things here. So I think yeah. the news has kind of got muddled about this whole Foxconn thing. So what happened is he visited two states, right? And he they have officially they are saying they have not committed to anything, but there were two big visits here, right? First one was actually Telangana. Right? Telangana. The Telangana folks are saying even there there is a potential of one lakh jobs over the next ten years. but in telangana what they'll do is uh, they will do electronic goods manufacturing not related to anything of their iphone side and in karnataka as you said that is one which got a little bit more media which has this number of about 700 million or something 700 for iphone again i think i was just googling around to see you know if there is any firm commitment so what they are saying is that there is no firm commitment but these are their plans so essentially 100000 jobs each in both sides right uh, is the potential so only very few news reports carried both of them together 
so it's quite an interesting sort of development right so hopefully both of these things will work out and uh, it will be very crucial for getting more industrial jobs manufacturing jobs in india yeah and if you consider foxconn's revenue right i mean 700 million is really chump change for them to be honest well in another interesting development the supreme court on thursday said that the appointment of members of the election commission of india eci should be done on the advice of a committee comprising the prime minister chief justice of india and the leader of the opposition in the lok sabha this decision by the apex court is being hailed by several legal experts and political leaders as a win for democracy however this move by the court has raised questions as to when they will open up to having a more transparent and inclusive system in the appointment of judges abhishek you know we've spoken about judicial overreach plenty of times on the podcast earlier we even did an episode with uh, shubendu and sarthak on if the constitution is still relevant today and you know we covered a bit of this stuff there as well right but it seems like you know the supreme court and the legal system seems to slowly start encroaching all facets of uh, public life in india yeah again uh, quite an interesting development here so basically what happened is that in 2015 someone filed a public interest litigation challenging the constitutional validity of how the center appoints members of the uh, election commission right so basically a panel of names is suggested to the prime minister who then advises the president and based on that the president used to appoint the cec and other election commissioners so basically there was no uh, clear law in the parliament as of today and so basically using that loophole you can say or that gap supreme court decided that uh, you know they will fill in that vacuum by uh, proposing this new methodology right where the cgi along with the prime minister and the leader of opposition will now be choosing the cec yeah i mean it definitely feels like this is yet another example of judicial overreach but right now it also seems like it's kind of pretty difficult to push back on essentially because since the time they have kind of made themselves unaccountable in a sense with by rejecting or calling the njac verdict unconstitutional right so one of the amusing things for me is that like our present uh, cgi often quotes or uses examples from foreign judicial verdicts or practices especially the american one right but how judges are appointed in india uh, would be laughed at right in, in the west especially right because this is like it has become quite a very unique system i don't think any major country right now has this sort of self selecting perpetually self selecting judiciary right which sort of appoints itself so yeah i mean it's a get one more chapter in this whole ongoing sort of tussle between the judiciary and the executive but yeah i think for now Uh, basically if you see the verdict what they are saying is that this sort of stands till a law is passed in parliament right and so the onus is now on the government to see that if they do not agree with this that they should bring in a law which sort of clarifies what should be the process for the appointment of the chief election commissioner interestingly enough i think 
Anand Rangarajan mentioned on Twitter that uh, in 2012, Mr. L.K. Adwani, the then leader of opposition from the BJP, had himself suggested this formula. So it's not so much so that the methodology of having a PM, the opposition leader and CGI as the people to pick the CEC is wrong. It's more like why should the courts uh, get into this business in the first place, right? Which is more of a questionable thing. But yeah, let's see if the government anytime soon brings in a law to amend this or to ratify this or at least make it via a law passed in the parliament. Yeah, I think this halo of the Supreme Court has diminished, uh, you know, significantly, I think, with the time. And hopefully, you know, we'll see in the next three, four years further diminishing, right? Because this fact that the judges and the courts are beyond reproach or this feeling has to really vanish, I, I feel, right? You know, I was watching this uh, uh, interview of uh, Mr. Arun Shori and he was arguing vehemently about uh, the fact that, you know, the, the usual spiel about, you know, the Modi government uh, sort of trespassing uh, institutions and diminishing their power and whatnot. But uh, yeah, I mean, the NJIC seems uh, to anyone who has some idea about it, I mean, it just seems uh, totally unfair, right? I mean, you have a lot of these second, third generation judges, right? It's absurd. I mean, like Charlie Munger says, you know, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcomes. So yeah, let's uh, hope that maybe in the next term, you know, something of this sort can be done on that NJIC front. So just adding a part, right? If you look at like how uh, functioning of the courts and uh, functioning of election commission, and you think about like courts, the way people are selected, that is also a problem by like the judges themselves select other judges. And it's a very clubby thing, right? It's it's more like a gymkhana membership, right? And you look at like their outcomes. You look at like how consistent are they? They've restricted the number of courts. So arithmetically, there is a huge backlog, which can be solved by having more judges, right? All those kind of things, they say restricted them in, in saying like in terms of quality. Whereas like other countries, do they have like, less quality or India is like such a big private sector is there less quality and then now look at election commission in prior to the 80s you saw like a lot of elections being rigged uh, you saw uh, booth capturing you saw a lot of law and order issues uh, you saw people uh, impersonating and putting fake votes on behalf of others etc right and over time this is incremental change I remember TN session saying that, okay, the election has to be held in many multiple phases. They introduced electronic voting and use of EVMs, which are tamper-proof, no matter who says. You look at India's election history, you've seen a lot of change of power, right? You've seen a lot of change of power. So it's not as if the election commission has been compromised and the same people keep coming in power, right? You see change of power, not only at the central government, you see it at the state government, you see it at the municipal or the Zilla Parishad level, right? So the election commission, irrespective of how the head has been chosen, has done a fantastic job. So you look at, does that need to be fixed? Or we should get the head of election commission, make a comment, how the selection of judiciary should be changed, right? I think you're having like judicial overreach here. What about say election commission or some other bureaucrat saying that, oh, that is wrong. Maybe the current system may not be perfect and surely all systems can be improved. I think this is clearly a case of judicial overreach or increasing their own self-importance. Second thing is they're saying that collapse of democracy, etc. is if people who agree with you win, then it is a democratic republic. If people who disagree with you, then you call it electoral autocracy. That oh, people are voting or people are voting wrong. I think that 
that itself needs to be understood and to be fair election commission is one institution which i think in terms of outcomes has delivered incrementally better results over my own lifetime since like i can remember since like family were discussing etc right the amount of uh, lawlessness and booth capturing used to happen in smaller rural constituencies in the heartlands right that has reduced dramatically you've got pan cards now you've got aadhar as well but pan card was your first photo id and then you've delivered so many things so election commission i don't think it's doing anything biased or anything wrong selection by any one side so uh, that itself is very important to see yeah and think about what a logistical nightmare elections in india can be right i mean such a vast country so diverse so many complexities and stuff just works so yeah they've done a phenomenal job uh, as an institution over over time for sure right i mean they've definitely improved in speaking of election commission i was reminded of this movie newton which had rajkumar rao i think rajkumar rao and pankaj tripathi Yeah, really nice movie. So if you if you guys haven't checked it out, uh, you should definitely watch it. In other news, on second March, the latest installment of the Raising Our Dialogues, India's premier external affairs event kicked off. Italian President Giorgia Meloni gave a keynote speech where she heaped praises on Prime Minister Modi and his approval ratings, and spoke about deepening ties between India and Italy. Minister of External Affairs Dr S Jayashankar in a panel said that the quad stands for and not against anybody and quipped that he thinks India is the center of the world near of India's rise in geopolitics uh, its prominence is becoming a lot more significant and uh, yeah did you catch any of the uh, panels and discussions uh, from the Raising Our Dialogues so while i've not actually seen the full panel etc right but i've like gotten sound bites and gotten uh, information or analysis from others and so basically i think so one is this year g20 presidency goes by rotation previous was indonesia and now this year is india so it's not as if oh, india's stature is risen but now coincidentally you've got the g20 in india this raising a dialogue which has been going on o- over 8 years right this is the eighth one is also uh, being held at the same time this is showcasing india's incremental growth right and it's a like great in geopolitics second thing is you see like we have had like a huge shock and uh, everybody is europe realized how much it was reliant on russia and how much could like a single shock uh, derail their best laid plans right and so now world is trying to diversify away from china so world is also looking at india so this year's conference is, uh, is entitled a like, provocation uncertainty turbulence and a lighthouse in the tempest right so we've had provocation you can say like between russia and ukraine you've got like threats of provocation from like china actual provocation on the indian border as well that is one you got uncertainty earlier we were living in an era of like extended peace and like extended low volatility right like you said a lot of very little uncertainty you are sure you have have just in time manufacturing you give an order it comes up on time everything moves like clockwork right all that has changed right and covid taught us that the supply chains are actually fragile if there's some there could be a flood somewhere or there could be something else somewhere and that kind of the interconnectedness of the world so you've got that you've got turbulence you've got a lot of changes so all of this and now in this storm we like to say india is a lighthouse and we should not be overstating and like over you know being thinking ourselves like too grand but definitely can we be like a lighthouse in like this vast ocean right which gives a little bit of guidance so so that is one thing second thing is that in the quad meeting right that is india usa australia and japan what jay shankar said that india is not a just a counterweight to china right india is a force within itself 
See, India has very successfully done over the last, I would say, decade or two decades is dehyphenating itself from Pakistan. So it's no longer Indo-Pak. Pakistan is its own problem. India has a lot to offer on its own. India has offered a lot in like IT-enabled services to the whole world. And now probably even say in manufacturing, also as a market, also as a partner, also like in geopolitics, right? Indian peacekeeping forces and India has had operation those where they've uh, given aid to Turkey, etc. So India has a lot to offer on its own. So you want to be partners with India because India has a lot to offer on its own, not as a counterweight to someone else, right? So I think that is a very strong statement, right? And uh, finally, India is like a nice neutral ground right now. It's a place where Lavrov could meet uh, Blinken, right? U.S. Secretary of State is meeting Defense Chief of Russia, right? So this is also like a nice opportunity. And it is India's rising stature in the world of geopolitics. For a long time, geopolitics was only like the Soviet bloc versus the American bloc. So it was NATO plus U.S. and uh, Soviet Union. Then you saw the rise of China. You've seen economic rise of East Asia, Southeast Asia, not so much in like geopolitics. So now you're seeing a, a multipolar world, hopefully, right? There's no one center of power. You had a sort of unipolar world for a while after the collapse of USSR in the 90s and 2000s. Then you've seen rise of China. But if it's a multipolar world, I think the comment I liked the best uh, by Dr. Jay Shankar was that India has a lot to offer on its own. Like if you want to be partners with India, be partners with India, not because you are trying to diversify away from China. Yes, that is also true, but there is enough that India has to offer. So this kind of also helps. You had like uh, Italian PM inaugurating it. India is working on FTA with EU, so probably helps there. China already has one, and they are the biggest two trading partners, actually. Right? China does more trade with European Union than European Union with the US or China with the US. Right? So there is huge opportunity there. India has FTA signed already with Australia, one in the pipeline with UK as well. So all of these things and Rome wasn't built in a day, right? I think India is going on this path and our incremental increase in power. I just hope that we don't get too ahead of ourselves and like already say that we were arrived and make a lot of other mistakes. What China has potentially done like in a few geopolitical things, right? Hopefully that doesn't happen. And uh, yeah, so uh, also uh, to be fair, we do remember our like, last two foreign ministers like Jai Shankar and Sushma Swaraj. It's very difficult to remember like Indian foreign ministers having like a big stage and like having addressing the world. And even for me to remember who was there in uh, UPA or NDA as well, right? At that time, it is very difficult to remember. And now you've got a very articulate person who's not a grassroots level politician who's gotten a job from political heft, but a diplomat who has very good strength in foreign policy. And he's been taken over, uh, he's taken over the job as well. Right? So uh, that's also like a very good positive. And that's how we are projecting. India is not just Modi. India has got like a whole team around him, right? Like, so that's a very good positive. Yeah. No, external affairs, uh, geopolitics used to be such a snooze uh, sometime back, you know. I mean, the highlight or rather the most interesting thing that I recollect is, uh, you know, SM Krishna reading the Portuguese diplomat's uh, speech. at <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> at uh, some conference or something. In like, the UN, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. in the UN. In fact, our friend Velina Chakarova is also at the Resina Dialogues. Uh, she even met Prime Minister Modi, who offered her some feedback and so on. So, interesting stuff all through. Well, finally, earlier this week, uh, Rahul Gandhi gave a lecture at Cambridge University in UK titled, Learning to Listen in the 21st Century. 
In his lecture, he claimed that democracy in India is under attack and once again made the claim of federalism and likened India's union of states to that of Europe and its nations. In his lecture, he also claimed that his phone was spied upon. Well, Abhishek, uh, this lecture circuit of Rahul Gandhi's, right, uh, occasionally happens and the talking points are kind of shockingly similar, right, each time, uh, which is the, you know, the whole federalism spiel uh, or the fact that India is, uh, you know, not, not really a democracy and things to that effect. Uh, and making the case for these things outside of India, right, I mean, it, I think it's a huge disservice, right, to us. But yeah, what do you make of this? Obviously, he has some advisors who are telling him to say all these things or maybe he truly believes these are the right things to say. So, equating India more like Europe, right, where he says basically it's upon the states to discuss and negotiate amongst themselves how to live and all that. Basically, it sounds like he's okay with, you know, few states seceding every now and then, right? Then he talked about obviously the normal western media talking points about india these days right like indian democracy is under attack a lot of people in india under attack opposition is under attack minorities are under attack so on and so forth so on that it was like pretty standard and then the more amusing thing was that you know he he said that while walking in kashmir he could see the militants looking at him but they did not sort of attack him like uh, <laughs> that got very <laughs> amusing. Somewhere else, I think a few days back, again, he talked about how he was able to sort of hoist flags in Kashmir and things like that. I mean, to the normal person, it would sound like he's praising the work done by the central government and Prime Minister Modi or Amit Shah in making Kashmir more normal. But he does give... So, so let me just quote something i have this open right so he says those boys over there they are militants now militants should normally kill me in that environment militants should kill me so i look at them and they are giving me this sort of look and i am like okay i am now in trouble like what <laughs> like if you read all this or i mean i have not listened to it but i was just reading the, the newspaper reports and it's like uh, it's very bizarre what all he says. I don't know if he plans to say all this or, you know, it just happens with him. But it, it was quite a bizarre thing. Like he said that uh, one interesting thing he said is that Prime Minister Modi may be doing two or three good things. Like giving ladies gas cylinders or giving people bank accounts. But in my view, Narendra Modi is destroying the architecture of India. So... This is like a new, uh, next level of idea of India, right? <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting what their game plan is. Maybe their game plan is that, you know, eventually this will work. Maybe if not in 2024, maybe in 2029, this will become a very attractive proposition. I don't know, but uh, it does seem very bizarre from the outside. Yeah, so one more thing is what they're trying to do is that they are leaning on like, like, like global forces to discredit India or discredit this government. And like it's the people who like we like are, are winning, then it's fine. Otherwise, it's wrong. Second thing is, he did a whole Bharat Jodo Yatra, I think 4,000 odd kilometers, right? Uh, you try and see like in non-democracies, how can uh, in the countries that he's comparing India to, 
an opposition leader is not really allowed to do this and he was allowed to do this right he was allowed to do it as a citizen as like a politician as leader of a party anybody who wants to do this conduct like a yatra or a road show etc is allowed right so that itself says that india is a democracy what rahul gandhi is trying to do is is looking at discrediting indian government here he can't win elections locally but probably looking to raise funds or something of that sort gain sympathy overseas and uh, i don't know if he like i think yes if he wants to win elections probably he needs to do more things like campaign locally right and uh, there are better ways than calling your calling names to your opponent right uh, there are ways in which you can say what else do you have to offer what else is your plan right oh if these were trivial things like giving gas cylinders or clean water or toilets in every home which has improved the life of like the median or the average indian right and like all of us are like urban elites but like average indian still lives in villages and their lives have improved dramatically like bank accounts then why couldn't this have been thought earlier and if this is already done what else can be done right i think rather than the idea of india architecture of india and uh, those kind of abstract concepts which anyways is like only like there's a small group think a lot of people who agree with him and uh, yes but that is not electorally significant that is why they are not winning elections probably needs to focus more domestically he's done some of it this bharat jodo yatra was a part of it but there also is of criticizing uh, he has to show what alternative does he have to offer yeah i think you've pretty much summed up everything uh, just a couple of points to add right discrediting the opponent is is uh, like table stakes right it happens everywhere really uh, even in the us i mean uh, politicians routinely sort of show the others their opponents as bad rather than themselves as good right and it seems to kind of work with varying mileage uh, in different elections right but but discrediting the process itself i think that is a bigger challenge because when you say that you know there is no democracy or there's lack of democracy in india then you're discrediting the process itself and that i think for a politician that's a very dangerous remark to make right because if anything it should be india above everything else right about above uh, uh, political differences and what not so yeah there may be differences on ideologies or policies and so on and so forth but that is i think one unifying factor that not just politicians that everyone every citizen of india should have right so all right uh, on that note uh, we come to the end of this bharat vartha weekly uh, if you have listened to us until now uh, do take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite platforms uh, it really will help more people discover all of this content that we're putting out uh, thank you so much uh, for being with us we are due an episode on the fintech 2.0 that i mentioned last time apologies for that we couldn't publish it last week uh, the network was a little patchy and so we had to do a little bit of AI mastery. So you will hear a bit of a synthetic voice on the episode. Hopefully, I mean it should uh, be fine. Hopefully, the content makes up for some of these uh, uh, things. Uh, so yeah, we'll put out that fintech episode with uh, Mandar Kagade, Sumita Kale, and Monika Jasuja next week. Until then, from Abhishek Dilawan and myself, thank you for joining us. Stay safe, take care, and Jai Hind.